We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. I am so thrilled and excited to have a man that frankly needs no introduction joining us today, Dr. Robert Malone. Uh, for If there's some person out there that somehow doesn't know Dr. Robert Malone, he is uh, one of the original inventors of the mRNA vaccine technology that's actually currently being used in the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, ha- he has an unbelievable background and um, is probably one of the strongest warriors that I've had the privilege of working with in this fight. Uh, and he's also the chief uh, medical officer for the Unity Project. So welcome, Dr. Malone. We're so excited to have you here today. Hi, Laura. It's good to see you again and, and be chatting with you again. I guess the last time we met was at the Freedom Fest. That's right. That's right. And I feel like, gosh, when was that? Freedom Fest was a couple of weeks ago. And I feel like in a couple of weeks, it never ceases to amaze me how much can happen in a short period of time. There's so much that we have to talk about. Um, I know that, you know, you've, you've been on many, many podcasts to include Joe Rogan's podcast, and we've gone through extensively your background and, and these vaccines and why they're so dangerous in particular in the, in the pediatric population. I think today, let's just talk about what's happening in the world and and why what's happening in the current environment, especially as it relates to medical freedoms, is so dangerous. So maybe we start off by talking about some things that are going on in California, and I think they're relevant to even outside the state of California, potentially even relevant to the international community. Um, are you familiar with any of the bills that are that are happening in California that have been authored or in the, and in the legislative process? I can't name them by number. You guys, mm-hmm. I'd relied on you guys to do that comprehensive and, and assessment. <laughs> My understanding is that one of the more egregious ones, the one of the censorship ones on physicians is passed now. Is that true? That's correct. So it uh, it went through a committee vote. It passed the committee with flying colors. It was actually shocking. You know, I, I know you're familiar with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Dr. Cariotti and I went up to Sacramento. He testified actually in front of the state Senate and it was shocking how quickly this bill passed, even though there was so much opposition. I mean, there were, I would say 45 minutes of people calling in and expressing their opposition to this bill. And it was individuals as well as uh, representatives of organizations. But I, I think it's interesting to have the conversation about why this particular bill, and it's AB 2098 for, for those of you that are listening, um, Assembly Bill 2098. and. It was authored by um, Assemblyman Lowe, and I think it's, let's just, I guess, dive into why it's so destructive. I personally think that this represents the the door that's opening to the total destruction of the medical system in this country. 
What are your thoughts? Uh, so you, we now have a position because in the state of California, and, and I can tell you that most of the other states that I travel in are looking at California as an exemplar of what not to do and of what can happen when these kinds of trends in a single party system, uh, this kind of overreach uh, hits a critical mass and you get kind of a strange feeding frenzy where things are driven even more extreme. And, and it happens, I think, I think we, to be fair, we have to recognize that it happens on both ends of the political spectrum when you have single party control. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but California has become the exemplar. And mm -hmm. of course, underneath that, we have the uh, long, rich history of the governor having ties with the World Economic Forum. And that seems to be a common thread for many of these that have been totally accepting of the uh, narrative that the vaccines are fully safe and effective. Tell me more yes, about they, that. Yeah, so let's yeah. explore that and that connection to the World Economic Forum and why that's so dangerous right now. Well, uh, what we have is a situation where many of the policies that have been implemented throughout the world, particularly in the West, have uh, been fostered in, in the most, uh, let's say, uh, aggressive or totalitarian or authoritarian, there's a bunch of words we could use, but uh, the most aggressive ways have uh, had leaders of those states or countries such as Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, much of the leadership of Australia, and some of the European states have, uh, Macron is another example, have, uh, are run by these uh, uh, individuals who have been trained over this five-year program called the Young Leaders uh, Training Program uh, that the World Economic Forum is, has been operating now for decades. So we have a number of these uh, leaders created by the Young Leaders Program, trained by this entity that is really a trade union organization, but it's not uh, a union in the sense that we might think of a workers union. It's a trade organization that represents approximately the thousands, thousand largest companies in the world. And so these individuals have been trained to accept and buy into the uh, initiatives, uh, logic, um, uh, interest of these thousand largest corporations. And the leadership, uh, Klaus Schwab of, of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab is the uh, titular leader. Uh, for some reason, he has created a persona that uh, you would think uh, it's almost straight out of a James Bond novel. Uh, he, he, he seems to have intentionally created a persona of Dr. Evil. And that's, that's a, a, a difficult to understand why any savvy um, politician in the current environment would do that. But in any case, Gavin Newsom is absolutely a creature of the World Economic Forum and uh, trained as such and operates as such. And these, uh, this organization, uh, together with its partner, the United Nations, and other entities <clears throat> that are more difficult to discern, 
that are typically large financial interests have uh, built a set of uh, models, projections, goals, et cetera, like Agenda 2030, uh, and laid out um, methods that they wish to use to obtain these. And for some reason, these folks are seem to be very, very aligned with many of the policies of the CCP in China. And this, this so, isn't just words. Um, right. And, so and we've learned that a lot of the conveyor belt, the, the, the connector between um, these Chinese policies as it relates to COVID, right. which includes the censorship, information control, lockdowns, masks, et cetera. And you'll recall Tony Fauci, I think it was last week, saying that if he had to do it if over, he would be, if anything, more authoritarian. Uh, right. this, this seems to be flowing uh, from the CCP, from the People's Republic of China, as a set of policies that have been uh, uh, thrust into the uh, thought space of the World Health Organization and the leadership in the United States, Health and Human Services. And uh, in, in <clears throat> we see this uh, in particular uh, with the uh, recent book, um, uh, as well as uh, Tony Fauci, so Deborah Birx's book, in which she explicitly acknowledges that these policies that she preferred uh, in, in really injected into the, the CDC and the whole HHS structure when she was sitting on Mike Pence's committee, mm -hmm. these were uh, the policies of the CCP, they were based on her acceptance of those were based on mm -hmm. propaganda that the CCP actively promoted, such as the mass graves, the dying in the streets, and the rapid build of the hospital that we all recall from early 2020. All of that has now been revealed to have been Chinese propaganda. Right. <clears throat> and well, all of it, which it sure Burke like still, still accepts. So mm -hmm. what we have is this strange situation where we have CC communist Chinese policies um, that have been moved into the West through a variety of vehicles, including the World Health Organization, and which were um, uh, diametrically opposed to prior World, World Health Organization policy positions. So the WHO prior policy positions on say pandemic influenza were that we shouldn't have lockdowns, we shouldn't have masking, we shouldn't have barriers to border uh, entry, et cetera. There's a whole series of these things that were then, um, and, and we shouldn't have vaccine passports that were then revised under some pressure that's unknown, it's unclear. Um, and they were propagated both upward from the US government to World Health Organization and throughout the world, and then also into World Health Organization and down. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this was aligned with this cabal kind of that we call the WEF or the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. And so California seems to have accepted all of these uh, as um, uh, based on uh, scientific truths and and accepted the logic which is really i'm not i'm not calling these people communists but what else can you say that that 
the Communist Party in China believes that this kind of information control and propaganda is the right way to manage public health policy. Right. And, well, I mean, and California seems to have bought it lock, stock, and barrel for whatever reason. Yeah, I know the elected officials in California for sure are um, adopting these agenda-driven um, policies and initiatives, and they're they're forcing them on the people of California. What's amazing to me is that Californians continue to go along with it. I, everything that you said to me seems incredibly uh, transparent, and. It, it's amazing that we continue as citizens to just fall in line. Uh, you said something that was interesting because I've done some some research on the World Health Organization and some of the policies that are coming out. You said Agenda 2030. Uh, tell us a little bit about Agenda 2030. I think I've read about this. And um, the, if this is the one that I read about, it has to do with um, that essentially decentralizing the or excuse me, I should say centralizing the ability for um, processes and protocols and response to come. And it should be coming directly from the World Health Organization. It basically usurps the authority of the individual nation um, as it relates to pandemic type situations. I think you may be thinking, I'm not sure what you're referring to, Laura. You sounds like you're thinking about the international health regulation modifications that were proposed by the USHHS yes. last February. Yes. And which is that were, different than Agenda 2030? It is. So okay. um, Agenda 2030 is uh, something which has been implemented starting in the late 90s. It's it. I don't want to say it's a treaty. It's an agreement between the UN nation states, many hundreds of which, you know, it's like 150 or something have signed off on. And they are a set of goals and objectives for the way the world should be uh, by 2030. So they're aspirational mm -hmm. and they have language that is, uh, seems very, uh, I don't know what else to say, progressive in a positive way. The, the language sounds, very um, idealistic, a little starry-eyed, uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, this was, these are things like the concept uh, that the Biden administration now has incorporated into their 30 by 30 rule, which is that they wish to have 30% of the arable land in the United States uh, set aside as a reserve, non, non, not farmed whereas currently it's at 12%. Mm -hmm. And uh, the logic is aspirational that, that if we were to set aside this farmland and other arable properties and allow it to go wild again, then that would restore the ecological health of the United States. And who could argue with that? Everybody wants to have a, a better environment. Uh, um, another element, and yet the nuance is that these are aspirational goals that were set by small committees meeting in the context of the United Nations, which is to say, not to be dark, but the United Nations as a process in a community for coming to global consensus is very much biased by the interests of smaller states because they're all members and they all have votes and they all sit on committees. And so the UN um, can't, this is why we have the UN Security Council, 
uh, with the veto power that exists for the nations that are members of it is so that uh, global geopolitics can't be dominated by the interests of the very small countries is the problem with the structure of the UN. But uh, the uh, United Nations community uh, functioning as a community much like the EU does in which everything is very consensus driven. They have uh, come to these set of principles about th things like uh, CO2, global warming, carbon credits, um, uh, land use, water use. One of them is, and it's a very, very long list, okay? And we in the United States have signed off on this. It's not a treaty, but we've agreed to the, these objectives and principles. And uh, for instance, one of them that kind of answers one of the paradoxes I've, I've had trouble comprehending, which is why are we having open borders? Why is the United States having I think a lot of people are having borders? a hard time. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of folks that. are grappling. It doesn't make any sense. It will destroy the middle class, whether intentional or unintentional. I, I think a lot of these things are naive. Well, you, don't, well, you don't have a nation and, if you don't have borders. Well, well and and the and the new the new vision, the 2030 vision mm -hmm. is uh explicitly one of the line items is that uh people should be free to migrate geographically wherever they wish to. So it's couched in the language of personal freedom and equality, all, all people being equal mm -hmm. uh, all over the world. So it's very much a globalist vision. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so under this logic, uh, which remember the folks that are sitting on these committees are often in the, uh, let's say underdeveloped economies, Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the vision, the, the logic is all people are created equal. Who, who could disagree with that? Right. Um, all people have the same inalienable, inalienable rights. Who could disagree with that? Um, and from that flows the logic that they should, apparently, that there should be no constraints on uh, people's ability to move uh, to geographic locations where they can best optimize their, I guess, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, their happiness. Right. And so then the, when you have the leaders coming in that have bought into these fundamentally globalist uh, perspectives, this, this, is, this is built around the logic that we really, that the concept of nation state is obsolete. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah, really that's what you've got in California is a bunch of people is from where I sit as a as a native Californian looking uh, from the East Coast towards the West, uh, the, the state has gotten caught up in a in a loop political loop that's self reinforcing, right. well, and we're now seeing the ramifications of that. It's, yeah, uh, and so uh, the so the the open borders in the United States and in Germany and in France and in Austria uh, and in the UK that that all of that that seems so paradoxical, why, why would a government endorse that? Uh, it does, it is absolutely a line item in Agenda 2030. So these uh, uh, farming, the farming policies, for instance, here's another illustration. I, as you may recall, I just came back from Belgium two weekends yes. ago. 
And uh, so I had a chance to learn more about the farmer protest in the Netherlands. Oh, interesting. What's driving that is that there are uh, nitrogen goals having to do with nitrogen-based pollution because we have these nitrogen dead zones in the ocean right now because of the overuse of nitrogen fertilizers that are produced largely using natural gas. Um, so many of, you know, a lot of that's come out of Russia, but they're used by big agribusiness because it's a core to the business model of how agribusiness operates. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and it was intentionally promoted going back to the 60s by Earl Butts with the logic, this is under Nixon administration, the, it's another one of these things where who could argue we should feed the world? What's wrong with that? Okay. And uh, so we should feed the world, save the starving in emerging economies. And it's our moral obligation in the West to do so. We're rich. We should uh, support these people because they're people. We're all people. We're all equal. Um, and so we should, it should be uh, preventable that we have starvation. And uh, well, how are we going to solve that? In steps uh, Wall Street and big business, and they say, "Oh, we need bigger tractors and more fertilizer and and uh, fewer farmers, and everything is going to go upscale and mechanized." And and the the words were literally "get big or get out." And wow. what happens with a lot of these things where you have a bunch of bureaucrats that don't, you know, for instance, in this case, don't actually farm, uh, sitting around and making the decisions about what the goals and objectives are. Akin, I mean, this is really command economy thinking, right? Command economy is where they're coming from, and command economy is what did the Soviet Union in. Let's be clear on that. Um, and so the logic with the farmers that's happening in the Netherlands, just to complete the uh, example, is that uh, the European Union has told the Netherlands, which let's, let's kind of recall what is the Netherlands. It's a great big river floodplain. It's all old river alluvium mud. It's incredibly rich, fertile soil. It's very dense. And it's, they have a lot of water problems. That's why they have all the canals and the windmills and all that kind of stuff, all that things that we think about. Um, and so incredibly rich, deep uh, loam, sediment loam. And it, it is, one of the great red baskets of the world. And like everywhere else, they've gone to using these uh, synthetic chemical, you know, nitrogen fertilizers to increase the productivity further, which uh, generates runoff, which generates these dead zones. And so the Netherlands has been told, you have to meet the goals and objectives in reduction in nitrogen waste uh, by um, they have actually a stepwise series. So there's another milestone in like four years. And if you don't meet this goal, we will, we, the European Union, will not allow you to build more buildings uh, for high-tech purposes. Okay, so that's the, the carrot and the stick here um, is uh, if you, Netherlands, wish to grow your economy in, in the new industrial sectors, you'll need to have new buildings and infrastructure for that. And we are not gonna prove you doing that unless basically you shut down a bunch of your agriculture uh, because that's associated with the nitrogen runoff. This is the logic. It's very much like the ESG situation 
where there's all kinds of unintended consequences, but they never think them through. They just say unilaterally, we command that this is what you will do and you will live with the consequences. And so the farmers find themselves, the people that do this for a living that are really, they're not the ones that came up with these policies that you got to have million dollar tractors. Uh, right. They're just trying to do run their farms, but uh, they're the ones that are going to have to bear the brunt of uh, these uh, policy positions that have been developed in the 90s in times you know before we even had a lot of the technology and understanding that we have now. Right, right. And, and I think you're alluding to something, uh, or not even alluding, you're directly covering something that I, we're seeing seep into every area of society, whether it's you know, um, from a political standpoint to a policy standpoint and so on, which has to do with this uh, social shaming of anyone that doesn't want to get on board with whatever outrageous policies are being created. And uh, to your point, you said you brought up the fact that, you know, this concept of that who could disagree with wanting to feed everyone, who could disagree with wanting to stop world hunger. Um, and they come up with these policies that are outrageous, but it's veiled by this uh, moniker of social hero, right? We're doing something good for society. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting always talking with you, Dr. Malone, because I feel like you are a, a man of so much uh, knowledge. It seems like it's far, far beyond just vaccines, but bringing it back to the vaccines, something that surprised me, I read over the weekend that Illinois, New York, and California have declared states of emergency for monkeypox. Uh, and obviously we know that there's, there's now, I believe, um, vaccine centers that are, have opened in uh, New York and I believe in California, and they're pushing to have vaccines for monkeypox. Uh, it never ceases to amaze me that they're, I'm not even sure how they can declare this a state of emergency. From what I understand, monkeypox is related to homosexual activity. It spreads similar to the way um, HIV was originally spread, um, body fluid to body fluid contact. Um, it's not an airborne pathogen. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you know with regard to monkeypox. And my fear, of course, is that this will be um, COVID 2.0, where you're going to start seeing states of emergencies across the countries, lockdowns, required vaccines, and so on. Um, so Laura, you're, you're putting your finger right on the pain point. Uh, uh, so monkeypox. In, we've now learned uh, through COVID uh, with event 201, this, this war game planning session that was held in the fall of 2019, concurrent to when uh, SARS-CoV-2 was starting to circulate. We now know that those two timelines almost completely coincide. Mm -hmm. uh, and that event 201 was funded uh, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which profited by uh, making investments consistent with the projections anticipated by event 201. Uh, so, in a sense, these tell, tell us about event. Tell us about event two hundred one for 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 those of us that have not um, studied this and have our finger on the pulse as close as you do. So, 
there in in my world of biodefense and vaccines and medical countermeasures and all that stuff, it uh, for uh, well over a decade, um, certainly since uh, one, it's become the no norm to run these uh, war game scenarios in which representatives of a, a wide range of interest groups that uh, will uh, need to be skilled and knowledgeable should an outbreak occur. So once again, it all makes sense. It's, you know, oh, who could argue with the logic that we need to have planning? Uh, so uh, the, the idea that we should plan for a potential uh, infectious disease outbreak is something that I don't think anybody could argue with. Of course not. So these, these things have been ongoing now for quite a long time, uh, decades. And they what happens is that there is a threat assessment. So there's threat assessment and threat determination. There's threat assessment about infectious diseases. It's produced um, typically um, by either by HHS, BARDA, um, it's kind of a, a confluence of BARDA, DOD, and Homeland Security all come together and they, they do these threat assessments and they come up with a list of pathogens that they think are risks. And in that pathogen list has typically been since SARS-1, a coronavirus outbreak. And, and that makes sense. I mean, who could, those people that think, you know, David Martin is one name that often are mentioned as saying, well, this is proof that all of this was a pandemic and it was intentionally created. And I can tell you personally, whether or not this was a pandemic, and I, I don't want to get in the middle of that. Right. We could debate that for hours, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it is, if you, if you look at it through this lens, of uh, the need for responsible planning and coordination in advance of a public health emergency, uh, then it makes total sense to do planning and to engage in these war game practices. And sure. um, one of them uh, that specifically focused on a novel coronavirus was held in the fall of 2019. And it involved many people that we've now become familiar with, uh, kind of the, uh, you're there in Hollywood, uh, so you understand the logic of the A-list and the B-list celebrities. Oh, sure. So often these planning uh, war game things collect B-list folks and they play roles, just like you would uh, uh, act out a role for a, a Hollywood uh, thriller. Um, so they, they play out roles as if uh, they're representing the press or they're representing this interest group or that interest group or the government or the World Health Organization. And they'll often pull people from these organizations to participate. So this was done with event 201. Mm -hmm. And in my, in my opinion, this does not prove that all of this was uh, um, uh, intentionally driven. In my opinion, what happened with event 201 and all of the other prior war game scenario planning events uh, was that a collection of people were brought together which had biases towards authoritarianism. Many of these people have ties to the CIA. Um, many of these people have ties to the military. 
And uh, they have in kind of an end to Homeland Security and they have intrinsic biases about how they approach the world. They don't bring into these uh, war game scenarios um, people who represent uh, outlier constituencies. Sure. And the war game scenarios are, are often, and in the case of Event 201, specifically funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I think a reasonable case can be made that Bill and Melinda Gates um, is another one of these uh, kind of venture philanthropy-like things that uses the language of, of philanthropic giving and good works as a bit of a mask, a cover, under which they uh, make investments in, and uh, do other activities, uh, such as promoting uh, um, advocacy journalism is one, one example, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is to say propaganda. So they, sure. they, they do a lot of things kind of under this veneer of being philanthropists that actually generate a lot of revenue. And uh, Bill Gates is very proud of all the revenue that he made off of the COVID crisis with his vaccine company investments, just to put the nail into that one. Um, sure, this course. particular event 201, like many of them, is run through a Johns Hopkins Center for Bioterrorism, et cetera, that is a known, uh, I'm sorry, inside the Beltway slang, a spook shop. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, this is uh, a, a academic organization with tight associations with the intelligence community. Uh, that's the translation for spook shop. Um, <laughs> and uh, so this institute, <clears throat> think tank kind of set up at Hopkins, uh, runs these scenarios and has many other capabilities and functions mm -hmm. and often serves as kind of a parking place for people that have been in and out of public policy in, in health and, and biosecurity. And uh, so they, they ran this scenario with Bill and Melinda Gates funding and at, at, with these close ties to the intelligence community. And they came up with a set of policies that they said they would implement in the event of a coronavirus, novel coronavirus outbreak, which concurrently we had developing at the same time. Uh, you know, and a lot of people would point to that as uh, um, an inconvenient fact at best. And uh, then it seems that the policies that were proposed there, mm -hmm. which many of which were different from the policies that had been developed over decades relating to other airborne RNA virus uh, with uh, significant uh, pathogenicity like a pandemic flu. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that scenario, they came up with these more um, uh, authoritarian uh, policy positions. They spoke about the need to counter uh, vaccine deniers. Uh, and if I could just add too, right? They came up with these authoritarian policies, but they're po policies that also were ineffective at stopping a pandemic. Yeah. Absolutely. They were not science grounded. And, right. and that's so my, my key points, I think, on this uncomprehending this is you bring together a bunch of people that are that are basically spooks and, and dot mill types and and, uh, you know, a homeland security, which you can kind of think of as akin to the Customs and Border Protection in terms of how they see the world. Everything's a threat and everybody's a bad guy until proven otherwise. 
and and they they and they brought in media figures like from CNN that happened to be on the Council of Foreign Relations and other things, which is to essentially say they have ties to the intelligence community. So you had kind of layers of intelligence community on top of intelligence community, and no surprise that that when these folks run their scenarios, they reach for authoritarian responses almost reflexively. Sure, and, and, then and, having, and those authoritarian responses have nothing to do with uh, preventing human disease transmission. Yeah, well, and so that's that that gets to the deeper underlying uh, COVID narrative questions. But uh, if we're going to go there, this is going to be a three-hour interview. I, I um, know, I know. I feel like we're all over the place, but it's it's fascinating. You have so much. Uh, I always enjoy our conversations, and there's so much to talk about. We were. And we, you know, we were talking about monkeypox and how this yeah, so, seems to so, be a continuation of what we're, we've experienced the last so, almost so three years. So event 201 they ran, and it seems to have been at, at uh, a minimum very prescient in terms of the policies that were implemented. And uh, a skeptic could say you had a bunch of bureaucrats that are not uh, particularly high-powered intellectually, and they had a roadmap that says this is how you deal with this. And they just kind of marched down implementing that roadmap, even though it didn't make sense and it wasn't it wasn't resulting in the outcomes that were desired. But it was the roadmap. It was the thing that we had all agreed on we were going to do, and then by God we're going to do it. So along comes a similar planning session, almost up to the day, uh, held in Germany. Uh, at a uh, site that is uh, in a, a nonprofit think tank that's more focused on nuclear warfare planning. And, Interesting. Uh, and they uh, run an analogous simulation about monkeypox and the threat of monkeypox. And it, and it results in, they have a whole timeline of events that are going to occur with this monkeypox outbreak that results eventually in about a billion people dead. Okay. And it's, it's a highly pathogenic monkeypox that's being envisioned, which in my world is kind of, monkeypox is one of a number of pox viruses. There are many pox viruses. And of course, we're all afraid of smallpox. Uh, right. And uh, smallpox in theory is gone. Uh, so uh, it's been extinguished, it's been eradicated. There's only a few tubes left in the world. But the deep, dark secret about smallpox is with modern biotechnology, it could be created uh, by a 16-year-old um, uh, with a $100,000 budget from daddy uh, and, really? and the Rolodex that they need in order to send out the purchase orders for the recombinant DNA construction. I mean, it's, it's literally child's play now to recreate these pathogens. Um, and if the sequences are available, it's easy to do. So, so you this, all this chatter that there's no more smallpox in the world is kind of irrelevant because it can be recreated. Monkeypox is within that. So is camelpox, cowpox, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. There are many of these double-stranded DNA pox viruses that produce these vesicular lesions so little, little uh, right. blebs in our skin of fluid that are full of, of viruses. Right. And smallpox- So are you saying, just, I just want to make sure that I understand, I'm not a virologist. Um, so you're saying probably similar to the, the family of, of viruses with, under the umbrella of coronavirus, 
you have SARS-CoV-1, you have SARS-CoV-2 and so on. And I'm sure there, there are more out there that, that I, right. Yep. So similar, um, to similar analogy, you've got kind of this umbrella of pox family, smallpox, monkeypox, camelpox, and so on. Is that correct? You got it. And, uh, the only one in that whole family that is really particularly lethal is smallpox. And it is the one thing that uh, we all pat ourselves on the back for having eradicated in the vaccine community. It's like our one of our huge successes. Uh, polio, almost there. But smallpox eradication was a huge validation for the vaccine enterprise. And yet uh, there's been this rumble particularly coming out of the Gates Foundation and its various uh, subsidiaries mm -hmm. over the last decade of uh, threat alerts relating to smallpox and other pox viruses. And then there was this planning session and uh, nobody paid any attention to it. And it had a, like all these war game scenarios, a series of events that would occur over time. And I've, I've posted, we, we have three sub articles, I think, or maybe it's four now on monkeypox. Mm -hmm. So I've posted all those links in that timeline. You can find those graphics um, if you're interested. So this scenario was done. It was, I think it was um, May, May 2020. No, May 2021. And then it, it's either May or March 2022. So exactly a year after and almost to the day when they envisioned in this planning session the uh, an outbreak of a novel monkeypox, highly pathogenic monkeypox virus, that uh, there was this uh, world's largest um, uh, pride event, uh, a massive uh, um, uh, party in a uh, rave, I don't know what else to say. It's, they actually talk about it as a rave in their uh, um, website. Uh, basically the largest, uh, I need to discriminate, differentiate uh, gay male uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, party event in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, it had 50,000, something like that people attend. Uh, and uh, that seems to have been uh, the event at which this particular strain of monkeypox seems to have entered this particular population. And it's important to remember that monkeypox has been around for years. It was originally found in a group of uh, monkeys, research monkeys. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it infects rodents. It's indigenous in Central Africa. There's two major branches or clades in Africa. This one is the less pathogenic of the two. It's been circulating in Africa for who knows how long, mm -hmm. um, decades at a minimum. Uh, and uh, there was a prior monkeypox outbreak about 20 years ago in the United States due to importation of some African rodents that then uh, somehow uh, infected the population of prairie dogs in the Midwest. So we've had a prior prairie dog monkeypox outbreak uh, here in the United States, and there were very, very few deaths associated with it. So we've encountered this thing before. Now, one of the odd things is about a year ago, like about the time this scenario was being held, mm -hmm. 
the company that that built the smallpox vaccine, which we still have stockpiled, mm -hmm. uh, the more modern. I I had worked uh, actually with this to some extent, and with the older Drivax uh, smallpox vaccines when I was working for Dynepoint Vaccine Company, uh, which mm -hmm. is uh, right after uh, it was created right after the 9/11 attacks and the anthrax problems. Uh, so I have a lot of familiarity with these vaccines. They are associated with myocarditis. I was just going to uh, say, I'd love to explore some of the, the dangers. Yeah, so, I understand the smallpox vaccine is not, not without some dangers. Yeah, it, it has significant adverse events. And the more recent uh, versions that are more attenuated, in other words, a little less pathogenic, um, still have those. And they're also a little less effective. For some reason, uh, and Merrill Nass is the one that gets the credit for discovering this, uh, about a year ago in their annual review, because they provide this vaccine under stockpile contract to the government, someone unnamed within the government uh, told them that they wanted them to pursue uh, FDA authorization for the indication of using it for monkeypox. So again, there's these two things coming together <laughs> where there is a governmental organizations and affiliates planning in some way for this very odd event that you know we, one would not normally think about, which is a monkeypox outbreak of a more highly pathogenic monkeypox. Then we have, and, and I just got to say, as, a, as kind of a specialist in this area, if, if I had wanted to, I'm not saying somebody necessarily did, but if it had by, been my intention to introduce a modified monkeypox into uh, a special population that would then disseminate it globally uh, and uh, have uh, risk characteristics that would make it more likely as a population to be susceptible to this and more likely to further evolve this, uh, I would say, um, if, if I was uh, Miss Dr. Evil, uh, I would say, hmm, I think the perfect idea is that we find a massive gay rave population uh, where they all come together from all over the world. We introduce this virus into that population by a number of means it could be done. And then uh, it will spread during the event and then gets distributed worldwide as they go back to their homes. Uh, it, it, whether or not it was intentional. It is the perfect scenario if you intended to do something like that. I'll just leave that like that. Well, um, it's, you know, what's interesting is, you know, that scenario you, you said the unnamed government official, it sure, it, it feels very much like that, that unnamed individual had to be either very omniscient or orchestrated. Um, so we'll, we'll leave it at it that. Is, it <laughs> is rather odd. And it's rather odd that the government official uh, chose to be anonymous. Correct. Uh, are, so, are you aware so, that this? Are you aware that this weekend? I believe it's this weekend. Um, I'll have to. I'll have to check on that. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask Lynn, who's our producer. Is it this weekend that there is a gay pride um, event that's being held in San Francisco, and the elected officials in in California opted, even though they're declaring a state of emergency for monkeypox, they're opting to allow this event to continue forward. 
once again, it's not consistent with public health policy if that is the primary agenda. Right. Uh, um, and that's, that's the problem that many of us, including myself, face when trying to make sense out of the corona crisis, mm -hmm. is that the policies have been, uh, I, I'm going to use a fancy word, orthogonal, at a right, at a right <laughs> angle. Uh, they, they have not been consistent with a public health agenda. And uh, they may be consistent that other with other agendas, and that's a whole another set of rabbit holes. But that may be more about economics and and other things. But in Let the case of monkeypox, uh -huh. that the, the monkeypox, if if those who were infected uh, were identified, because this is absolutely unlike coronavirus, which is uh, aerosol transmitted. Right. Uh, very potently. Monkeypox is not that infectious and it is, it is transmitted by close, intimate, person-to-person -person contact. Correct. And uh, so it is a perfect scenario for contact tracing. And uh, in, a, in the, the classic uh, model of public health, I'm, I'm choosing my words, uh, a contact contact tracing would be initiated and those who were determined to, to be infected uh, would be uh, isolated in some way and uh, for the period of time during which the uh, risk of infection of others persisted. And in the case of monkeypox, that period of time appears to be about a month. And so all of this could be shut down literally, if the people who were infected, uh, rather than running out trying to get a vaccine that is not really designed for this and has its own adverse events, mm -hmm. if they abstained uh, for a little over a month, uh, um, like uh, some people that are married to sailors might have to abstain for a month from time to time. Uh, uh, you know, it I is know possible. a thing or two about that. <laughs> it is possible. Uh, and to do this, uh, we are adults, and uh, that that would shut it down. Uh, and um, but there's these other um, odd uh, financial interests. The company that holds uh, the product now, they bought it. That uh, is the um, current uh, um, suboptimal but sort of authorized vaccine product is Emergent Biosystems. This is the same company that basically capitalized and, and generated huge amounts of revenue over the anthrax attacks and the anthrax scare. And uh, Emergent paradoxically issued and, and signed, inked an agreement uh, to acquire the leading uh, drug treatment candidate, uh, um, conditional upon the US government issuing a contract. So the, a very complex contractual agreement was agreed upon and inked for the, for the leading drug candidate for uh, monkeypox. Mm -hmm. And it was inked about one week after the onset of the outbreak um, in that gay rave party is actually about one week after the onset that gave rape party, which is hard to make sense out of that, that a complex contract like that could be negotiated that quickly. 
Um, uh, clearly so there was that was something that was probably there's, there's a whole said. lot of things here he, that come together he, that don't make sense you know it's interesting though let's let's um just dissect for a second um covid versus monkeypox and the transmissibility because i feel as though um the media in particular is trying to portray monkeypox um, as the next pandemic obviously we're seeing it because elected officials are declaring states of emergency uh, I'm going to go way back to my days. I used to be a preventing disease transmission instructor, and there's four things that have to happen in order for a disease to to trans uh, transmit. Right? You have to have a disease. You have to have enough quantity of the disease. You have to have an in entry site, and you have to be susceptible. Right? If one of those four things is missing, you will not have human disease transfer. And I think it's really important to note that that in the case of COVID, COVID is an airborne pathogen. Right? And we know that that almost everyone is susceptible. And we also know that you don't have to have that high of a quantity of COVID uh, because it is so transmissible in order for someone to acquire it. And of course, since it's airborne, the pathway, um, the entry site would be, you know, the human respiratory system. In but the in the eyes. case, in the mm -hmm. eyes, uh, right? Um, so in the case of, of monkeypox, so it's very different right? You're not, it's not an airborne pathogen. You're not going to be at the grocery store and have someone next to you cough. And all of a sudden you've got monkey pox, right? So maybe, um, let's explore how, again, I keep going back to and saying it's spread very similar to the way HIV was spread and is spread to this day, human, um, body fluid to body fluid contact. Again, you have to have actually that, that is so Laura, if I can just noodle mm -hmm. on that, just a tiny bit yeah. in this current context, Mm -hmm. Within this particular cohort, um, that is the primary mode of transmission, apparently. Okay. And uh, that is different from uh, the historic primary uh, mode of transmission, which is uh, contact, but not necessarily of that kind of intimate body fluid transfer. It's basically anytime you have pustules or these open lesions that are shedding virus, uh, or or contact with an animal that has them inadvertently, mm -hmm. um, and you have a break in your skin, integument, um, you can get infected. It is you're absolutely right. It's not a respiratory pathogen, and in the current case, uh, the CDC actually put out a statement that in this outbreak there is a new symptom of monkeypox not previously observed. Uh, which is uh, this, um, I, I, we're being very cautious here about our wording, uh, <laughs> the, the perirectal or perianal uh, lesions with uh, associated with quite a bit of pain. That's a very sensitive area for most of us. Uh, and, um, and having these kinds of lesions uh, is apparently associated with quite a bit of pain and uh, inflammation. And so this is a new symptom. It was not seen previously, and it has to do with the cohort that's been infected in this case. So you're otherwise already right. And I, there's one, for any of the folks that wanna dive into this, of course, there's our sub stack and we followed this all the way through um, and followed the press. And, and it's really the big corporate press like CNN, um, Jake Tapper, uh, gets the gold star for uh, fear porn, in my opinion. Um, he, <laughs> who's the member of the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, and he put out one of the first major fear pushes here uh, with the initial reports of the outbreak. 
in which CNN used photographs of people with smallpox as a way at, and, and pushed them to the consciousness of the public as examples of monkeypox. In parallel, uh, Gavi, a Bill and Melinda Gates associated organization focused on AIDS, put out a website in which they claimed that there was 10% mortality from monkeypox. And in the wow. same website acknowledged the data from the World Health Organization on self-reports that said it was at most a 3% mortality. And that was biased because WHO gets the, the most florid cases are the ones that get reported to them. So this, this whole pushing of a narrative that this is something you should be afraid of and it's gonna kill you and it's gonna infect your kids uh, and that you need to wear a mask. There was a period of time in New York where they were starting to remask. Um, all, of, all of this is a false narrative. It is literally disinformation right. and right. malinformation pushed by the media. And, and I just wanna give another shout out. The one author, the one journalist that I've seen all the way through this that has been fair, accurate and balanced and actually done her work is Helen Branswell of Stat News. And oh. I go to Helen Branswell of Stat News um, anytime I have to write something new about monkeypox because she has been on this from the beginning and accurate, interviewing the proper scientists at the CDC and absolutely avoiding purveying and fear porn, but she's walking a really fine line. Instead of saying, well, my friends in the press are overstating this or misrepresenting this, she just says, well, this is what the truth is on whatever that topic area is. But you're, you're right that um, this is a modest threat uh, with a very low mortality rate to a specific cohort, uh, which is transmitted. It is, a, it is acting as a sexually transmitted disease that has not been the case in the past but it has to do with the behaviors of this cohort. And apparently a large fraction of those that are so afflicted mm -hmm. uh, do have a diagnosis of AIDS. So that's worrisome because it means that those by extension, those that have AIDS disease, whatever that is now, you know, is it mm -hmm. HHV, is it HIV, is it both, I, I don't know, but have this immunodeficiency, they're likely to become more chronically infected, which will lead to the development of, uh, wait for it, escape mutants uh, that will be able to circumvent the vaccines and any drugs that are deployed because they will have weakened immune systems and be chronically infected. So, yeah. so this, is a, uh, this is something that could get ugly, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, right now it's far from it. And just to kind of uh, put the buttercream frosting on the chocolate cake there, uh, we had Mr. Tedros, uh, his advisory group, as you'll recall, uh, recently met, convened, and uh, assessed the risk of monkeypox as a global uh, public health uh, infectious disease risk. And the committee had previously uh, um, decided that it was not. I think there was only three votes in favor previously. And apparently they changed some of the con constitution of the committee and added more 
advocates uh, for the, uh, um, I'm, I'm searching for the, the correct words here, uh, um, advocates for the uh, um, uh, gay community, I'll say that, uh, male gay community in the, uh, so doctors that are treating these people and other advocates from that community were added into this more recent one, uh, which voted uh, nine against and six for uh, declaring in a public health emergency, which Mr. Tedros uh, unilaterally decided, well, that constituted a tie nine to six. Right. Uh, and so he had to step <laughs> in and unilaterally break that tie and declared a public health emergency. Right. And uh, it appears from the chatter that I've heard and captured on social media and others, that Mr. Tedros was being subjected to quite a lot of pressure from this, uh, I don't know how else to say it, a special interest community. Uh, and that, uh, that I speculate, Mr. Tedros may have had uh, strong lobbying and advocacy both from that members, representatives of that community, mm -hmm. as, as well as representatives of the communities uh, that would profit from uh, the implementation of medical countermeasures such as drugs and vaccines. Right. And then we had so, our government stepping in saying, what is it, 7 billion uh, for the oh, purchase yeah. on these? Mm -hmm. 7 billion for vaccines for an already licensed vaccine is a huge buy. Right. Um, do you, I don't have the numbers. Do you happen to have the numbers of, of how many we have infected? I mean, last I checked, I, I, and again, it's been, I think it's been over a month since I've checked these numbers, but it was something like 30 people. I mean, it was very, very well, last. So, so, um, uh, the last time I checked was at the time of, uh, the decision by Tedros uh -huh. and, it, and it was something like 15,000 globally. And it was a few thousand in the United States. Okay. Uh, and the statement was made, I think that the United States was number two or number one as a nation state <clears throat> in terms of incidents. But that's a little misleading because in the case of the European Union, each of the member states were separately reporting. So if you looked at the EU in aggregate, Mm -hmm. um, which is really comparing apples to apples, EU to the right. United States, then it's, it's massively uh, biased towards EU. Um, but uh, that's, that's kind of, it's another one of these cases where the, the corporate media that wants to advance this narrative for whatever reason um, is kind of biasing how they report the information by saying, uh, well, there's, we've had this huge number of cases in the United States, mm -hmm compared to other nation states. And that's really misrepresenting. Of course, and I think Another it's just- Another that's important mm -hmm. is that early on, because uh, um, Portugal and Spain uh, are basically adjacent to these islands where this rave was happening, uh, the Portuguese had a large number of early patients. Mm -hmm. And in uh, a very good sequencing group and DNA analysis group, remember this is a DNA virus, double-stranded DNA virus. So it doesn't evolve very rapidly, typically, unlike coronavirus, which is single-stranded RNA virus. Double-stranded DNA pox viruses tend to not evolve very rapidly. And the Portuguese 
uh, research team uh, sequenced a lot of these separate isolates and were able to demonstrate that this particular monkeypox had acquired a number of new mutations mm -hmm. that were not previously represented in other known monkeypox isolates. And so then the question comes up whenever you see this, uh, were those evolved and we had this uh, infection as kind of a slow burning thing that might have been just lingering in some population, maybe an African population, mm -hmm. uh, and gradually acquiring these mutations. And then suddenly it was introduced into this rave environment and transmitted globally. Uh, right. So that's one version of that. And of course, in this modern world we're in, we can't discount the possibility of a uh, nefarious actor having uh, genetically modified this in some way. And so we're back on that whole loop. Right. Of well, I think that that's, I, I mean, I look after the last three years, I think it's pretty evident that that's a real and plausible possibility that at some point needs to be explored and discussed. Um, and, and we should, we should have government officials exploring and discussing that certainly beyond just the, the American public and what's very transparent to me and, and why we spent a lot of time today talking about monkeypox, because to me, it's just a continued continuation of what's happened over the last almost three years. And it's yet another mechanism to lock people down, strip away rights, um, you know, continue this, this human psychology of fear that, that we seem to be trying to force down everyone's throats. Um, you know, let's, let's switch gears just a little bit, bring it back to COVID and what's happening in California. I continue to struggle to understand how it is that in California, they're now continuing this effort to mass vaccinate children. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they're doing, they're, they're authoring bills that say, um, children as young as 12 years old will be able to make their own medical decisions. Um, they're saying yes. kids who are, who are not vaccinated are, uh, will be required to, uh, and go through weekly testing to provide their, their, you know, whether or not they're, they're COVID positive or negative. And then those results will then be reported to the California department of health for, to go into this, this, um, large database. Um, and these are just a couple of examples. We obviously talked about 2098 when we started the podcast, uh, which would take away doctor's ability to have a doctor-patient relationship and make medical decisions based on the patient's history and their medical expertise about the best pathway um, of treatment. And so it's amazing to me. I mean, COVID, it's, you know, to me, it's interesting. It seems like it's died down. Uh, the human psychology behind it to a certain extent has died down, but yet these elected officials continue to resurrect um, this, this narrative in an attempt to um, continue people's desire to either get vaccinated if they're not, or um, have this continued cycle of, of a need for vaccines. And I'm seeing, and I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on this, I feel like recently, you know, we're seeing the the people who are heavily vaccinated go through some really um, dire consequences uh, as a result of being vaccinated and continuing to acquire the COVID-19 virus, right? I mean, I, I recently had a family member 
that um, has been vaccinated four times, acquired COVID-19, and um, it was a really touch and go situation as to whether or not they they would pull out of it. So um, uh, as to the government officials that are uh, advocating uh, positions that are not logical from the standpoint of public health, Mm -hmm. uh, and can only really be understood as logical as having to do with some other agenda other than public health. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then one has to ask the question, who are they beholden to? And that's a follow the money problem. Mm -hmm. Regarding the latter point that you just made, which is the truth bomb that I dropped on uh, when I testified in the Texas Senate, uh, seems like forever ago now, but I think it was only three or four weeks. Um, uh, so uh, it is the data are incontrovertible. They're from all over the world that the highly inoculated, I'm choosing that word rather than vaccinated, right. uh, the highly inoculated with these, particularly these RNA products mm-hmm. are at higher risk of hospitalization and death than their uh, non-highly vaccinated peers. Right. And uh, I just, today we put out a substack from uh, Teo Shooters. Uh, and when I was in Belgium, a very experienced virologist who's looking at the Netherlands data that shows that in the 60 plus cohort in the Netherlands, cause they use vaccine campaigns to get at their elderly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the data show a fairly tight cor- statistical correlation between uh, the uh, an event, a wave event of vaccination, and a following wave event offset by about a week of uh, increase in all-cause mortality above baseline. Mm-hmm. And based on his calculations in that 60-plus cohort, the incidence of increased all-cause mortality above baseline, again, I'm choosing my words, is about one in 800. That is a mic drop. That that is uh, something that is a major bomb. Now, the the good news is that in general, so I'm saying this is in the cohort that's at highest risk for hospitalization and death from COVID, 60 plus. In, in general, even though uh, of those that are hospitalized and or dying all over the world are predominantly the highly inoculated, and in many cases, the incidence even of the infection and disease is biased towards the highly inoculated. And we've seen this just to, to name some names that we all recognize, Gavin Newsom, Justin Trudeau, uh, um, uh, Tony Fauci and the president of the United States. I was just going to say, uh, let's not uh, leave that, that one out. <laughs> so, so for those that are, uh, kind of, well, I don't understand this. I'm questioning it. Here's, here's two, uh, uh, individuals that have been identified by the Washington post as spreaders of misinformation telling me this, well, you can, you just like Laura just did, you can, uh, check in with your own family and friends. Is this what they're mm-hmm. seeing? And in most cases, yes. 
is this is what's is this what's being seen among the politicians that have been such great advocates for multiple inoculations? Yes, um, but the good news is our hospitals are not filling up. I've been documenting this for weeks now. Uh, the um, we're not having our beds fill up with these cases. Uh, the uh, you know, there were those that had predicted that within two to three years, everybody that took the vaccine would die. That is not what's happening. But uh, we are seeing a relatively small number of cases, but of those that are making it to the hospital and or dying, they tend to be highly inoculated like 98%. Uh, so that as opposed to people that might have natural infection, or had one or two jabs in the past. Right. So that's that's the this current scenario. And uh, that's, I mentioned the Theo Shooter's data from the Netherlands uh, to emphasize the point that this logic of uh, repeat inoculations is not without consequences. Uh, mm -hmm. The consequences can include the uh, immune impact printing, of which there is abundant literature in the top journals in the world, which is creating a sort of a bias in your immune system that makes it less able to fight off the current Omicron strains. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's other forms of damage to your immune system mm -hmm. associated with the multiple inoculations. And uh, these people that have been buying into this, including the children now that they want to do this to, right. are going to be at increased risk, not only for the myocarditis, and now there's other forms of cardiac damage that are becoming more apparent, mm -hmm. uh, the, the strokes, other blood coagulation problems, uh, right. the uh, brain fog and other neurocognitive problems, particularly important in children. And then Laura, as you're very sensitive to this, I know, and the Unity Project is, the whole issue of the reproductive uh, right. consequences is becoming uh, more and more, let's say, present mm -hmm. in, in the data. And like you're speaking about the uh, just casual observation among your colleagues, that uh, and friends that uh, the highly inoculated are seem to be the one getting the worst disease. You'll recall that an original CDC data set in which they asserted safety in pregnancy, mm -hmm. that data set was highly biased towards sex, second and third trimester pregnancies mm -hmm. in which spontaneous abortion is more of a rare event. Right, but right. In the, co in the small number of enrolled women who accepted the vaccine when they had first trimester pregnancies. The, uh, as I recall, the spontaneous abortion rate in that small cohort was upwards of 90%. Oh my goodness, wow. And, and it was statistically kind of washed out because they didn't segment the analysis by trimester, mm -hmm. even let alone month. Right. right. Um, they segmented it, they, they didn't, they aggregated all of it. And so the impact on that, those first trimester pregnancies was essentially statistically overwhelmed by the, the relative lack of impact in second and third trimester. Right. And, and on top of that, you have the women 
that have been so egregiously gaslighted as being okay. hysterical that mm -hmm. have been reporting these alterations in menses, which include uh, delayed menses, uh, skipped uh, periods, onset mm -hmm. of menses in the postmenopausal, uh, menstruation in the young female child, right. uh, and um, uh, these, and, and then, and so you had a lot of this kind of missed or delayed or intermittent or sudden onset in people that were already postmenopausal, that, that cluster. And, and then you had the ones that were reporting very heavy flow. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to remind, uh, very heavy flow is a symptom of first care, uh, trimester miscarriage. Sure, sure. And, and sometimes people might miss that. Well, this has been unbelievably enlightening as always, Dr. Malone. Um, I feel like every time I talk to you, I feel like I could talk to you for hours because there's so much going on. And as always, you're just a wealth of, of knowledge and information. And I can't thank you enough for what you're doing um, and what uh, your wife is doing. You guys are an incredibly like dynamic duo that seems to be um, a beacon of, of hope in what's going on in the world right now. I know that I personally uh, read your Substack all the time. So for anyone who's listening, who has not subscribed to Dr. Malone's Substack, please do because it's, uh, well, first of all, you have your Sunday funnies, which I, I love. <laughs> and um, just, just the information that's coming out is, is really unbelievable. And I think critical to understanding what's happening in the world right now. And then I know you have a book coming out. Is that correct? You want to tell us yeah, a little so bit about the that? Substack is rwmalonemd.substack.com. Easy to find unless you Google it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm persona non grata on Google, generally speaking. Right. And, and we'll, uh, and we'll put the link in the podcast so people can actually click uh, link into your Substack. And you can pre-purchase the book through Amazon. I should be, I should have had it wrapped by now. I'm guilty as charged uh, the press of events. Uh, and it has turned into a um, very large uh, book uh, on, uh, for better, or for worse. Uh, and uh, that's the lies my government told me in the better times ahead. And uh, it's the better times ahead that is most perplexing uh, and difficult to write. <laughs> And, but I think totally in essential is right. that we give people hope. Sure. Uh, it is, I really want to close. It is morning in America, my friends. I think we've turned this. At least now we know what we're up against. And, and we can start, uh, you know, leaning into the, uh, into the wheel and, and giving it a good hard push uh, so that we don't end up with our children living under a com Soviet style command economy run out of uh, some central location uh, that, that doesn't really uh, respect national autonomy and sovereignty. And, and I do think that's kind of where things are going unless people uh, wake up. And uh, I'm, I put, a, you mentioned the Substack, we put out a piece uh, the other day, California, there they go. Uh, playing off of the old uh, Al Jolson song of California, Here I Come. Right. And uh, talking about what's happened to the culture of my home state. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand it because so many people uh, were against 
things like big pharma manipulation and, mm -hmm. and genetic engineering of crops in ourselves and, uh, and uh, centralized uh, power and command economies and, uh, and authoritarian measures. California used to be the place of the free spirit uh, and, and everything has gone so dreadfully wrong and I, and I don't understand it. I, and I think it's kind of crystallized in Mr. Neil Young uh, being so incensed over my comments on Joe Rogan that he would withdraw uh, together with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And uh, right. um, uh, I and Joni Mitchell. Um, and they all came creeping back to Spotify in the end. But, uh, right. but what, what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong in California is what's happened in the last three years. Look, when you hand over your, that your, what I consider to be the greatest, um, civil like human rights, um, in this, in, in all of human civilization, this concept that we have, this idea that we have this United States of America and the constitution and everything that goes along with that. When you hand that over to elected officials and walk away from what the foundation of this country is, this is what you get. Look at California, take a, a long, hard look at California, because if we don't start realizing this across the nation, our nation is going to start looking like California. You're going to have rampant homeless problems. You're going to have rampant crime, um, a total loss of freedom in the state of California. Parents no longer have the right to parent their children and people don't understand that. So um, I, I can tell you exactly what's happened in the state of California and, and why it, it looks so different. So, yeah, well, I'm afraid we're going to have to, uh, 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 pause and uh, pick that thread up on our next yes. chat, Laura. And it's always my pleasure. And I want to acknowledge your leadership, you. uh, and the leadership of the unity project. And thank you for all that you've done. We just thank you so much for joining us and we will talk soon. From all of us at The Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that The Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.